Welcome to Unashamed Unafraid, a show unashamed about sexual addiction recovery and unafraid of coming into Christ for healing. Where we talk about real recovery stories, answer anonymous questions with experts, and share resources that actually work. I'm your host, Steve. And I'm your co-host, Chris. And we are Unashamed Unafraid. Chris, I feel like I love you. <laughs> well, that's good because I love you too, man. Um, and uh, you know that I just have like a like I like how people are like I love the smell of fresh cut grass or you know a bonfire or whatever. Just nothing <laughs> makes my heart happier than someone who is unashamed and unafraid. Right. And and two people who are like unashamed and unafraid to the whatever 11 out of 10 scale evan and missy evan and missy um multiple addictions um uh trauma background just all the stuff of 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 just a heart story but but the but just the openness just the depth and their and their hearts are just so big both of them just the, the way that they speak and the words they say are just beautiful Totally. And, um, I don't know if it was just like, cause we recorded on a different day of the week or what, but I just feel like so much got squeezed into this time. Like this is a rich episode. <laughs> yeah. They're really good at getting to the point when we ask them. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, invite you to, um, just take a look at this episode of, uh, someone who's, you know, served in church leadership, multiple addictions, professional license stuff, um, you know, trauma in childhood, uh, to, how to connect with the kids on it, how to stay in recovery, a lot of different recovery tools. So I invite you to stay with us in this episode. Um, and, uh, as you know, bonus content at the end of the episode for our outsiders, outsiders are those who are bold, accepted and unashamed, um, and, and help us with this movement of helping the entire world be unashamed and unafraid of, of coming into Christ for healing and knowing that hope's possible. So if you are not an outsider, we invite you to go to unashamedunafraid.com slash donate and become an outsider today, not only for the bonus content with Evan and Missy and all the episodes, which was dope, um, but to be a part of all of the things that we're doing and help support the um, change that people are making, whether it's a scholarship to a warrior heart or a therapy thing or an online thing or whatever. If you are in need of a scholarship, we want you to know you're worthy, deserving, and you are. And so we invite you to go to unashamedunafraid.com slash scholarships um, and apply there. Give us five stars on iTunes. That's how the world rates us. Share with your friends. Find us on social media at Unashamed Unafraid on Instagram and Facebook uh, and TikTok and other platforms coming soon. Um, and just open your heart a little bit. This one will be worth it. You'll love it. With that, we'll get in the studio. Evan Missy, so cool to have you here with us. <laughs> Glad Thank to be you. here. So traveling in from out of town. Yes. Tell us where you're hailing from. Eagle, Idaho. So do a little bit bigger for those who don't know where Eagle is, which isn't me, by the way. I know where Eagle is. Just Go Mustangs. Just, just oh. to prove it. <laughs> nice try, Broncos. <laughs> no, Eagle High School Eagle is oh, okay. the Mustang. You, you really and got specific. Very good. Boise. Very good. And Very then good. you go Broncos. I told you I knew my stuff. You yes, totally you did. Yes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so Boise. Yeah. Boise. Yeah. Very yeah. cool. So um, what made you want to share your story? Well, you know what? Um, we both feel like this is our calling. 
and anything that we could do to further this work. Um, we met both of you guys at a boot camp. Actually, I've heard you on a podcast prior to a boot camp. And then I've been to three boot camps, kind of bragged it up to my sweet wife and um, <laughs> just the work that you guys do. I mean, just anything we can do to help, we're in. Warriorheart.com. See you there. Chris would love to give you a big hug. Yes? Yes, absolutely. <laughs> So um, tell us where where the story starts for you, Evan. So tell us about growing up years, um, how you got exposed, and really, like, what was the relationship with all of that and God? So uh, I think mine's an interesting story. I've um, battled multiple addictions in my life. I didn't know that. I had no idea. So mine's a, kind of the same standard story of most guys that battled pornography as a young guy and through most of your life. And so I won't kind of go into that too much, but um, mine was on and off through my life until, you know, there's periods of sobriety and periods of not doing well. Um, but I remember at a point of time in my life when I was in church service, um, I was um, on the high council and my state president <clears throat> approached me and said, hey, let's talk about pornography. And he was very specific about it because I typically would, um, you know, clean myself up, try and do the best that I could and whatever I could do to get by an interview, I would, I would salvage and work it that way. At this point in time, I told him, yeah, I had had a problem with it, but I felt like I was in a good place and we had a really good conversation about it. And he committed me to um, overcome it and wanted to call me to be serving over a young single adult ward. So that was kind of my point at which I went into sobriety. What I didn't understand, which I do now, is I was in abstinence, white-knuckling it. And um, that went on for about 10 years. And I'd served as a high counselor, and then I got called to be bishop over a young single adult ward. So I am. So this is like head pastor stuff for a congregation. Mm -hmm. Just if you're not LDS translating, right? So this is. And the and the the people that I'm working with are young people from you know age 18 to 30. Um, They're single. Yeah. And um, it was an awesome calling. I loved it, and Missy was tremendous help in in that process. It was very divine, and I learned a lot. But what had happened that I didn't understand was um, I was battling an addiction and I was in abstinence. Nothing had really particularly changed about me. I had a par- powerful testimony of the church, spiritual experiences and all that. But I didn't really know what addiction was. And so during that time frame, while I was in that calling, um, when I had pain bubble up from my life, you know, your imprints, all those things that happened, which we could get into that um, if we want to. But what ended up happening is I would lean on the things that I did to run and hide. And it was sports, weightlifting, golf, you know, a variety of things. Um, and what happened is at the end of my um, calling as bishop, I had a shoulder surgery that was pretty significant, an injury and a surgery. And they put me on um, hydrocodone, narcotic painkillers. <clears throat> well, Essentially, I was a prime pump ready for whatever was the next pain relief to come along. So when that came, I just fell into it just naturally. And I hummed along just feeling all the pain of any bodily injury, shoulder, knee, finger, you know, lifting weights. That would hurt. I could do it. But then I discovered almost subconsciously that it took away just the pain of life, the anxiety, the worry. And um, after a period of taking that, 
I happened to be a dentist and in my practice I had access to narcotic painkillers. So I just transitioned into the stuff that I had to practice. You just write yourself the prescription and... Yeah, I didn't even have to write it. I just... It, but you it, just have it. Just had it. Just order it. You give it to patients or not. Yeah. And in my case, um, that was my rationalization. I was taking it for pain. And then before long, you become an addict. And then I, I fought that for some time, um, mentally, emotionally, and spiritually. Couldn't believe that that was the case, but in fact, it was. So I'd come home uh, on a Sunday from church feeling so guilty. I'd drive out to my office and I'd take the bottle of you know, 500 pills and I throw in the dumpster thinking, I'm done. I am done. And of course I'm in abstinence, so it didn't last. And so in a period of time, I'd order up more and roll again. And then at one point in time, uh, this had gone on for about three years. Um, I had, um, a DEA agent and a border pharmacy investigator show up at my office and said, we think you've got a problem. And I, Basically, the gig was up. Of course, I tried everything an addict does to explain and, you know, rationalize, you know, all the reasons why and what. But essentially, um, my that, life... Did they ahead. think that you were using or that you were dealing it? Well, good question. They didn't know. And they they essentially told me, you're going to a rehab facility. Um, your board knows. Your license is hanging in the balance. And while you're gone... We're going to investigate you with the attorney general's office, and we like to make examples of guys like you. So we we see that you've used way more than one person could, you know, the throwaway in the dumpster issue. I gave them my explanation. It sounded lame to them. They thought, we're going to investigate, and we will let you know essentially whether you're going to jail or whether we're going to press charges. I had no defense. But um, so we'll let you know in three to four months. So sit on that. So I spent every waking day in the shower driving, thinking, how do I defend myself? What's going to happen? What if I am a felon? What if I go to jail? Will I lose my wife, my kids, my family, my reputation, everything? And your family knew nothing at that time. They didn't know anything about it until this gig happened. And I went home at lunch and told my wife what was going on. And we had about two days to pick a 90-day rehab center. We picked Hattiesburg, Mississippi. And I dumped all this on my sweet wife, told my kids, told my parents, told my state president. I was serving on the high council at the time. And it, it was it, the same thing would have been put in handcuffs and hauled off in a paddy wagon. But for me, it was, this is your license. You do this or you're done. And while you're waiting, you might be going to jail. You might yeah. be going to prison. So I'm going to put you on pause. So I'm coming to you. So, Missy, tell us about how you were raised. Like, give us that background. Um, I was raised LDS family. Okay. Um, mom and dad. So grew up in church. Grew up in church. Uh-huh. Uh, mom and dad, um, nine kids. There was nine kids. I'm the middle of nine. And it wasn't, um, we went, but it was not... Um, with the heart. It was, you know, people are watching, they're looking at you. And, and I realized sure. as I look back, it was more, um, out of loyalty and duty than it was. They, they take us to church and drop us off and then come back and get us. So, um, that's kind of how I was raised. Um, I remember trying a couple family home evenings and they'd turn into accusation and finger pointing. <laughs> and so it, so then they'd say, well, let's sing love at home. That should fix it. And that didn't fix it. So anyway, um, I, uh, 
raised in this in this family. I don't know how to extra, describe it exactly. I loved my mom and dad, but they had their problems. Didn't know it at the time. Um, but at when I was in seventh grade, my dad ended up going to prison. And while he was in prison, my mom, you know, served papers and wanted a divorce. And, and the one thing in my family is like, I, I knew things were going on. Something wasn't quite right. It didn't sit right in my heart. I, and I try and figure it out because we weren't really a communicative family. We Sure. Let's keep these things secret and don't talk about it. And let's, you know, look good on the outside. And um, so he ended up going and he being dad, dad ended mm-hmm. up um, going to um, prison for a year. And at that point, my family kind of split up. Two kids went here, two kids. So went how there. old were you when that happened? I was 12. Oh, okay. My seventh grade, I was going into my seventh grade year. Um, my older brother went on a mission. My dad went to prison <laughs> and then a lot happened. Wow. In that yes. Year. My sister got married. My 18 year old sister got married. And then, um, me and the next, the sister next to me, the little, the older one. And then I stayed at home and while well, the younger kids, five of the younger kids got separated to different um, relatives for that summer. And so in that summer, I learned how to hold one beer in my hand and carry it around the whole time. Act act, act like I'm 16. I got really good advice. (laughs) Act like you're 16. Walk around with this beer and we're going to have parties and it's going to be really fun (laughs) because there's no one watching over us. So anyway. um, And you're getting this advice from who? My sister. Okay. Because, you know, she was, she had got a job at 14, told people she was 16. Yeah. You know, it just, we're like, okay. So this is what it looks like to look 16. Yeah. So, okay. So you should do this. And yeah. And it was, and we were really close. My sister, um, the one older than me, we were very, very close. And I, I trusted her and, and we just were doing, we were just surviving. You know, we just were doing the best we could. Totally. Living in this house of, of dysfunction and, and no order. But I order. think it's beautiful that you said that because I think most mistakes that people make, like most things that people are most ashamed about are actually people doing the best they can to survive. Right. Mm-hmm. Like it actually is the, is the like most righteous choice they could make given the choices given that the were choice. actually presented. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Doing the yeah. best you can with what you have. Yeah. At right. Time. Right. And yeah. so, you know, at a very young age and then, um, I, I got a pot, I, I had a lot of responsibility to put on me because the older ones being gone, and then so I, I drove in seventh grade. <laughs> I would drive all over town up to Island Park. I would run errands for my dad. Grew up in Boise, Idaho Falls. Okay, Idaho Falls. Yeah, Idaho yeah, Falls. both of us in that area. Yeah, yeah. Okay. and so um, I just thought it was normal that you just go out and get in the car. One time I'm like, gosh, I don't have a license on this car. I'll just take this license plate off this car, put it on this car, and then drive this car, and got picked up. <laughs> the police are like, um, you don't have a license, and you're driving a car that doesn't have a license. And and you're like, look, if I, you want to run I, carpool, a red light. please do. <laughs> I'm, like, I'm like, is that bad? I'm, I'm just trying to get to this next thing that I'm supposed to be at. <laughs> you know? So mm-hmm. it just, it's like. So in, in all of that, who was God for you? My dad, my, I, I looked up to my dad. I looked up to my mom. They were my, they were my higher powers. And they were the ones that told me, you do this and you'll be doing this. You'll be taking care of the kids. Well, well, we're going to do this, you know, and I, I know my mom, she really suffered through some hard times, um, ended up having a nervous breakdown, um, 
through the whole trial and my dad going to prison. And, and I just think she was just, she was just done. And at that time, no one went and got counseling. No one talked about anything. No one, you know, I mean, it was just keep it quiet. Let's just, we're just fine. Just tell everyone you're fine. Let's keep it quiet. And I'm inside going, something is just not right. I need to talk to someone. I need to. And I remember at one point, <laughs> just um, in seventh grade, my oldest sister had helped me um, try for, uh, try out for cheerleader. I worked all summer <laughs> and I won. And anyway, I was supposed to be at this game and and my mom's driving me to school and I, and we get in this big fight and I, I'm, I say, I, I'm not the mom. Well, she, she had told you, you need to go do this. Yeah, you, you need can't to go pick to the game. Kids. You got to come home, get uh, the yeah, kids' yeah. homework done, put yeah. bit, all these things. And I'm like, okay. So anyway, I thought, I've got to stand up for myself. <laughs> so anyway, slams on the brakes. I fly into the windshield. We get in this huge fight. She drops me off at school. And um, I feel like I've had angels that come into my life at certain times. And this, this counselor saw me in the hall and pulled me in and he, I just cried and cried and cried and cried and cried. And I just kept thinking, what am I going to tell him? My mommy won't let me go to this game tonight because <laughs> I mean, that sounds so stupid. But yet inside I was being asked to do these things that I wasn't prepared for mm-hmm. or mature enough for, or I didn't get it. You know, I'm 12. I want to go play. And so anyway, um, I just kept everything inside. I'm like, I'm going to be fine. You know? So anyway, so I come from very, overt dysfunction um, in in my family. So, you know, I saw my dad was an alcoholic, these different things. And so growing up, I'm like, I don't want that. I want to have a different kind of life. So then I went to Rick's College because my friends were going there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I followed them and... This is up, where you two meet? Ended up meeting Evan. Okay. Mm-hmm. So tell me about the man you married. The man I married was a super kind. I remember I dated a lot of really good looking guys, really kind. Um, well, maybe. So good looking didn't win, kindness did. No. <laughs> what I'm but saying if you guys is, saw Evan, you'd be not like, this only is was a good, good looking, looking dude. Kind, he was he was deeply kind. He would, he would, the way he treated my roommates and my siblings when they came up and spent time with me this one specific weekend that we call it the weekend that we fell in love. But, and I just was, I was just amazed with his, his heart and his kindness and, and that he'd been raised in this really good LDS family. (laughs) He knew the scriptures. He knew the gospel. I'm like, oh my gosh, these are the kind of things I want in my life. So I, I totally relate to that, having a family system that was more chaotic like yours and several of the people I did, but even Kayla now it was, there was structure and there was all this. And I was like, yes, that's the camp. I want that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally. Yep. So I just followed friends and I'm like, and I honestly do think there was just different people in my life that were like, here's this next road. I'm going to take this road instead of this other road. And I do believe there's angels along the way that... And I, and I was, I, I, luckily I was open enough to, to at least follow that direction. So I got to Rick's college and. Yeah. So as you guys are kind of humming along, you're, you're in abstinence to use your word, right? You're in kids happen in this mix. Oh yeah. Yeah. So we, we had uh, four kids. Um, our first daughter was born in Richmond, Virginia while we were in dental school. Um, no stress there. And um, second daughter was born in California when I was in a general practice residency in the Bay Area. Um, 
And you didn't start using it until after you were done with school. Yeah. So the, my, my, of course I didn't understand what addiction was. So my realization of that, that was an addiction came after my healing from my, from the nuclear bomb that went off in our, in our marriage. And then the healing that came after that, then retrospectively we could look back and go, Oh my gosh, I was an addict to that. And yeah. So tell us real quick. Cause I know probably a lot of people got, so tell us when you said multiple addictions, what are the multiple addictions? Um, well, the porn lust, um, lust is really it. Um, that was on and off again, but you could kind of modulate things. And when you're under, when, when you could put that away for a while, then it would be sports, uh, playing, participating, watching, um, weightlifting, bodybuilding, um, golf, you know, anything that you know, I'm kind of an obsessive personality, but you know, just a, a little seed. One of the pains and imprints that came for me as a youth, um, is perfectionism. Um, feeling like my validation from being a, a troubled bad kid maybe early on and then getting validation from doing good, latching onto that, going, oh, that's that's how I get love. So I just fell into this raging perfectionist and then leaned on you know hard work and self-discipline to just accomplish these amazing things and then thinking that's the answer, you know? Knuckle down, bear yeah. down, work hard, self-discipline. Yeah. You know, even in, you know, and then I had that those years of abstinence, which weren't, particularly beautiful um but it worked until i crashed and burned and then yeah, I, so before the crash and burn <clears throat> like how did you see god input output so judgmental had a unconditional ha loving what, what was it for you well always had a testimony um felt some wonderful spiritual experiences in my life in the mission field um us together, miracles and the things that we did and, and serving. Um, definitely. So I, I would say I had a lot of the understanding in my head and a little bit moved to my heart, but I would tell you that the pain of battling the addiction and being in a place where all of my effort was, um, extinguished and my ability was gone and being in a place where I had no place to turn but to him and then realizing it's not you. It, you know, humility was injected into my life in just a powerful way. And then um, in that broken, humble place, you know, really turning to God. And in that experiential learning that happened there and being rescued by him, by being pulled out of the pit by his hands, me holding the rope and then going, it's him. This get me out of there. That's when um, my heart, you know, completely changed and um, started a process because recovery, there's these monumental events that happen, but they just kind of initiate this divine process. I was justified. And then sanctification's him saying, yeah, let's go mountain climbing now. You know, you're out of the pit. You know who I am. You understand my ropes. You understand me, my strength. And now with a relationship, let's go. So there's so many things that happened along that process of him trying to heal me, not only of my addiction, but of the of the garbage, the false doctrine I believed in my life of, oh yeah, you're not good enough unless you, and sorry, I got off track back to your original question. My, my view of God. Just got off track, like dropping some just deep change of heart recovery <laughs> information. Yeah. If you could stay on track for us sorry. or get off track more. I think. Sorry. But, 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 but my, my feelings about God is, as I look back on it, I, I was more in a transactional 
relationship, you know, you do this and you get paid that, you know, these things came from that. And I really was living, as Steve Young calls it in his wonderful book, Law of Love, that lower track. And and I know that's a a track that God initiated, you know, the children of Israel had that lower law, um, you know, when they broke the, you know, the tablets and said, you know, you you guys got to go on the low law. But I know that he invites you at a point when you're ready. to join him on the higher track. You know, once you get out of the pit and you you understand the ropes of the Redeemer and the strength of his hands in a relationship, that's fear-driven. That's early recovery. You know, it's fear-driven. But then at some point when you're back up on level ground and he dusts you off and you're like, dude, I'm where I was. I can live my life the way I was. And he's like, no, no, no. And he puts his arms on your shoulders and looks you in the eye and with great love says, my ropes were meant to get you out of the pit. And for you to love me, my ropes are really meant for us to mountain climb. And that's what we're going to do now. And that's when the sanctification happens. And he goes, it's an invitation. It's no more fear. Motivation has to change. Then he goes, do you want to come? And then you go, yeah. And he says, we're going to go help some brothers along the way in pits. And we're going to see the most amazing things. And it's just going to be awesome. And then off you go. And and that process, that, that happening, those things, it takes, you know, it takes time. Or as Magic Mark says, you pay a toll. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I, I really relate. And Chris, I know you really can relate to, um, I think sometimes people have like an anger at a transactional God, like this is super unfair. But, you know, when you're someone who actually can perform pretty well, that works out for you for a long time. You know, and, and, you I, know and I know I've found you can, Chris, you yeah. and I, you can, you know, tell us like having these conversations of like, well, you have to earn it. And I'm like, that's good. Cause I can. So, you know, you, you have to play good enough ball to make the team. And I'm like, well, good. I'm good enough. So that, you know, and, and the, and the fallacy and the truth. I mean, you and I've had this conversation, right? You almost instill, you embed that knowledge that it is transactional because you've been able to work really hard and earn these things and accomplish these things. And there you go. You look at it and then you have to have that broken. Uh, right. Or else you just kind of keep you stay in that. Right? Yeah. You have to have it broken. And for sure. I love that. Missy raised her hand and then Evan went on this beautiful thing about this analogy like, with I'm gods and ropes and all that. <laughs> so I, I was interesting. By the way, I got to give credit. Jared Halverson gave me that analogy and I've kind of latched onto it. Credit due to where it came from. Okay. Sweet. Credit to Jared Halverson. Look him up. Um, so he's the BYU guy, right? BYU professor. Yeah. yeah. Just so when you're Amazing. Googling. Beautiful podcast. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so it's interesting because when this happened and Evan ended up going to rehab, I remember a woman asking me, well, how did you not know any of this? And I thought, okay, I have known something is wrong. I, after having three kids in four years and going through massive baby blues and depression, I went and got help for myself because I'm like, something is wrong. I, I want to leave him. I'm, something's not right. And I'm feeling something's just amiss. And so I read and read and I, my, one of my first books was Adult Children of Alcoholics and it made Mm. sense. I was like, okay, I get it. I came from an alcoholic family and it's a family disease and each one of us 100%. has been affected in certain ways. So here's me. And so then I read, uh, you know, healthy parenting from that same author. And then I read books about anger and I'm, because I'm like, there's something going on between Evan and I, there's, you know, we, we, we love each other. I know that, but 
he goes down these roads and I'm like, hey, and I'm a fighter. And I'm a, like, what is going on? You tell me. And when I'd find his porn, it would break my heart. And then I'm like, okay, what can I do? What can I do to make me more enticing for you? How do I, you know, I'll jump in and do whatever. And for many years that went on and it was, it didn't work. <laughs> it wasn't helpful. Which just is your version of earning it. Right. My version of earning it, thinking, yeah. okay, if I do this next thing or whatever, and, and we'll stay together because I don't want the divorce that I was raised with. I don't want that. And, uh, you know, I vowed I was never going to get divorced. I didn't want to do this to my children. And so, so of course, the years we have our highs and lows and ups and downs and back and forth, and we'd get in these arguments. And, and, and at that point, as we now understand, Evan was very, he had a shield and mm. I would come and attack it. And then he would just hold it up higher. <laughs> my my defense mechanism is retreat, you know. Avoid. Don't have conflict. Yeah. I, know, Miss, I know how that goes. Yeah. <laughs> Missy, yeah. Very she, well. She grew up in a family where you had to fight and claw I for everything. I need to fight and be and, loud. And in my family, it's like, no, no, we don't do that. No. So I would, she would get louder and, and I would get quieter and try and be more calm to calm her down. And it would take her off. It's like, he's not hearing me. I need and to so get now that we understand the dynamic, but at the time it was this circle. It was, oh, it was a terrible kind of, dance. We, it was the it was dance we terrible. did. And so having a lot of therapy. Well, and they had to have some crazy making for it you. Was cra- I, it was crazy. I thought I was insane. Yeah. I'm mm-hmm. asking him these yeah. things. He's like, oh, you don't see what you're seeing. Well, it's kind of like in the football game where like Chris pushes me and then I push him after and then the ref you looks at him push me and I'm like, oh, dude, this guy's out of control, right? <laughs> yes. And that's like, exactly what it is. Up. Yep. Yeah. Totally. That's exactly what it was. And, I, and I'm thinking, I'm crazy. So I go to my counselor, tell him all the things about me. I never bring up anything about Evan or our relationship. Yeah. Cause it's me. Yeah. So then, so as I see him these, in these years that start where, you know, after the pornography, the workout, the, this and that just on and on. And all of a sudden this opioid addiction is the thing that finally breaks him when he came home and told me, cause we'd been arguing, he was off. I'm like, we need counseling. We need this. And anyway, so he comes home that, that. And was he up for therapy at all? Or he just like, no, no. No, he's like, mm, well, actually, we went it. to therapy. It didn't take because I wasn't humble <laughs> enough. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I, I tried to get him in, and the doctor looks I've at me. I've gaslighted like, a few hmm. therapists in my time. So, yeah, I, yeah, he's not ready. I'm like, okay. So, um, when he told me, I had the most profound peace because I'm like, everything fit into place. Yeah, it now everything. makes sense. It now made sense. That was the, the missing piece that yeah. I, I'm not I, crazy. I'm not seeing it. Yes. Yeah. And so, and I knew. And I honestly think because he, I was so willing to work with the DEA and the people and I'm like, what can I do? How can I do this? What do you need from me? What can I bring? Can I show you? Can I open up our home? How do I get all the, the drugs or whatever you're needing out? How can we make this? Because I know, I know the man I married. He's not this same guy. Something's wrong and he needs to be fixed. And I'm so glad you've taken him to do this. And so that's where I, so I kind of went numb. So when he was in rehab, I'm, I'm kind of numb for three months. <laughs> so did he tell you, when he came and talked to you, told you, hey, I'm going to this rehab. Did he tell you everything about his life with everything going on? Oh, no. Or just, hey, I'm just, I'm dealing with this issue. And yeah. this is the only thing that you're going to know about yeah. me. It's called trickle truth. It, yeah, it's a nuclear <laughs> bomb that went off. And then, well, you know, denial is an interesting thing. I hope we can talk about that for a sec. You okay yeah. if we go there? <laughs> no, not at all. Yeah. Sorry, in the story. Well, well, I just love how often people ask for permission. Yeah, well, you guys are the bosses like, here. Hey, whatever you want to share. And yeah. they're like, can we talk about this? Yeah, yeah so, sure can. W- w- before I get to that, just one little, little bit, because 
my personality as a perfectionist would be in recovery to do the 12 steps, you know, get the, the merit badge bandolo on with all the merit badges, stand up proudly, show it, stick the landing, da-da, nailed it, I'm healed, I'm good, I'm out of here, see ya. And I was really blessed that um, the, the board, the medical boards in Idaho, and I think they do in Utah as well, they have, if you are in the situation I am in, you sign a contract with a company called Southworth and, and Associates. And, and what it does is for five years, they own you and you have to do whatever they say or your license is gone. At any given time. Yep. So five years and they had things that you had to do once, go to Every this single day. Three, three month rehab. I had to, for six months, go to one 12 step meeting every day, six months, one per day. After those six months, it went down to four per week. And, and you're actually giving like documented evidence. I have to. Mm-hmm. So you're like leaving 12 so being like, hey, facilitator, can you sign this for mm-hmm. me so I can turn it? Right. And, the, yeah. and I have to meet, I have to get a sponsor. I have to meet with my sponsor regularly and I have to prove that I have to go through the 12 steps. We had to go to marriage counseling once a week, it went down to once a month. We, I had to go to a group counseling session with other professionals, doctors, you know, there's brain surgeons, cardiologists, dentists, pharmacists, all these really really smart, intelligent guys, but are all battling addiction. So two hours a week in that, I had to have uh, all these different uh, people look over me. I had to do a call in every day to see if I did a drug test. So every day. So what it did was it created an incredibly high level of accountability and an incredibly high level of um, um, the cost, the um, consequences. Sorry. That's that's an old brain working. (laughs) Accountability (laughs) and consequences. But those two things... Even if you're 34, you get that too. (laughs) I mean, not me, but other people. Thank you. Thank you. you. So those two things being so elevated, they, it works in early recovery. You, you're not going to... Totally. So you don't relapse. So for five years, I had this really strong accountability and consequences. I mean, I lost everything could be my, it'd be my license for sure. I could go to jail, wife, all these things. And, and they, I mean, they had me under my thumb. So for five years, I'm in the program, going to the 12 steps, have a sponsor doing all these things. And, and then my heart's changing. Okay. I'm starting to get stuff and see, I could look back and see, oh my gosh, I was an addict to these other things as well. I didn't recognize that. So in that place, after those five years, then you're done, you graduate, you can go, okay, I can quit going to meetings if I choose to. But you go, I can't. I love the way that I live. I love the changes that we've gone through in this life that we are living. And I'm in, I am in. Matter of fact, now I'm going to move over to the church side and I'm going to jump into that and just you know, whatever I can do to help. And so your heart changes. So I wanted to clear that. That's kind of an important concept for us, but about denial. Every addict has these tremendous ability to change what truth is in their brain. Well, I would say every human being. Right. Yeah. Addicts are particularly good at every human being. Well, and I'll tell you how we (laughs) We talk about it. Maybe we we have good practice. How we talk about it on the show is, right, I would say you are Evan... Right. I wouldn't call you an addict. That's mm-hmm. an identity, right? I was, and I know in the 12 step they do, and I, and I get that a big part of it is willing to own your stuff. Mm-hmm. So I, I can see the gray in it, but because um, I think it's what you're enumerating right now. And, yeah. and what you said, right, is like, 
I'm Evan who struggles with an addiction. And I think, you know, Missy, you said it beautifully when you're saying, you know, you're like, I know who I married and, and I know like the addiction. Right. And these are two separate people. Right. 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 And well, so. And when I say I'm an addict in recovery, what I mean to say is I've been redeemed by Christ. And the ad- addiction was the pain that I felt that helped me find my redemption. So I say it with no shame. Now, there was a lot of shame early on, but sure. I've, I'm yeah. out of that. But back to denial. So anybody that's that's gone through those things has incredible abilities for denial, uh, minimization, rationalization. So the, the, the cloak of invisibility, you pull it up over your addiction so you can be okay with the things that are gone. You don't even see it, you, you, you know... You, you continue totally. to function. Totally. But what I didn't realize was in recovery, I could start to pull that down and see my addiction for what it was and get real and honest and blah, blah, blah. What I didn't realize until later in recovery is I had pulled up that same cloak of invisibility over my wife and the pain that I caused her. It was too painful for me to deal with. And so I didn't recognize that until partway through uh, recovery, Missy and I, I mean, if she ever brought up you know, the porn thing, I'm saying, honey, I haven't looked at that for like 20 years. I've been healed. I've talked to my state presidency. It's over. You see, why you wanna, do Christ, you want to hurt me? Christ says that that sin's gone. It's yep. like it's never done. So I never wanted to go there. I had such shame about that thing. I never wanted to go there. So it took a lot of healing. Well, first it had to fester and boil up to where Missy and I are like, whoa, this is a thing. But at the I'm time, still hurting from yeah, the Yeah, she's past still hurting because we'd never we've gone never back into that. We were right. just like yeah. quiet silence. So yeah. finally, I, that cloak of invisibility, the denial that was related to her and the hurt that I'd given her had been torn down. And then I realized, you know what? I got to be a man. I got to get rid of the shame around that thing, hold her hand and walk with her into that stuff, owning everything, no shame, and help her heal. And that was like one of the most beautiful parts of our relationship that happened is to go, this person that's been betrayed and I've never been able to, you know, make amends for that properly because I, you know, always say is I'm sorry, which became a cuss word in our relationship. You know, you just don't want to hear that anymore. So I I have two questions for you then, Missy. Mm -hmm. One is when did God show up for you in all this and what were you doing during that whole five years of, of Evan going through all of his uh, recovery and all the stuff that with the DEA and working through all that. So what were you at with that and with God? Um, <clears throat> I feel like the Holy Ghost, I, I feel like I was being spoken to and I'm trying to speak with him and he would shut me down. And so I kind of, I had resentments over the fact that I was feeling like I was getting inspiration about things and he would shut me down. So I, I had some re- um, resentments about that toward him. When he ended up going that day and I do- we had a daughter live in Salt Lake and she drove up with her two kids and for 10 days my kids just came and surrounded me and we just talked and one night he'd been gone I think two or three nights and I ended up in the closet <laughs> just sobbing I'm like how did I get here this is not what I wanted this is not what I wanted I I had a whole different plan I thought we were on the same page and I just remember this overwhelming feeling of love come over me. And, and I just heard God say, you are so loved. I love you so, so much. And then I heard him say, and I love Evan as much as I love you. And I 
thought, what? We are mad at him. You know, but it was it was such a, a kind gift to me so that I wouldn't sit in resentment and anger the whole time while he was gone. And I ended up going with a friend to Al-Anon because I'm like, I don't know where, what else to do. Sure. And I and the Southworth said, you need to go and and because you need to be healed. I'm like, why do I need to be healed? And so after about six weeks going and meeting these people and speaking with these people who had been hurt and betrayed, I thought, I, I, this is exactly where I need to be. And the mm-hmm. spirit and the, the message was so strong. And one of the things that I heard that just went right to my heart was, you need to get healthy. You need to grow and don't do anything for three years. You need to see what the chances are if you both are healed and healing, if you can make this work. Because yeah, don't get divorced. Or don't get divorced because my, my, my yeah. counselor said, are you ready to walk away? Are you strong enough to walk away? And I'm like, That's not, I didn't want that. Um, so, so because of that, I, I thought, you know what, that is really good advice. And I just found principle after principle after principle being taught in Al-Anon work. And I just, I just embraced it. And I thought, give me another book. Give me another book. (laughs) I just want to read. I want to know. I didn't know the word. I didn't know what a boundary was. I didn't know what an amend was. I didn't know what detachment was. I didn't know what enmeshment was. And we were really enmeshed. And so I, I had a lot of learning to do. And I thought, if I'm willing to jump in and do this, I hope that he's willing to jump in and do this. And then, and then I think we can, I think we can make this work. And so I saw God everywhere in our recovery. I saw it in people that I was able to talk to and share with who I, who I found out would be safe. I found people who weren't safe and I just would say, Hey, we're struggling. We really could use prayer at this time. And that was all I would share. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was really a beautiful thing. You really know who your friends are who step up and show up for you. And um, I saw some beautiful work done. So so one question for you, because you talked a lot about um, abstinence, right? And like, and, and kind of that, the being the force, you know, I use the term dry drunk, right? Like, right. So I'll say when I'm, I'm like, stuff, if yep. you want a year of sobriety, I can get it for you guaranteed. Like if you're willing to lock yourself in a room and you know what I mean? Like right. we can bring you soup every day and like chain you up far enough away you can't masturbate and like that. Like it's, it, it's, mm-hmm. you can just, there is a way to just do it. Right. right. Um, but so how, how is that like transitioned for you? So how long are you from that five year period today? Well, I would, I would tell like, you. Sorry, actual time frame. So, so that five year period ended when? Like a month ago or about, 10 years about, ago? About six years ago. Yeah. So, so over that six years, how, you know, so a bunch I, of relapse and struggle or, or the transitioning from that? A good question. Yeah. So I told you about the high accountability and the high consequences. So there right. was never a relapse because of that. Right. So during that five years, there was a lot of learning and growing and changing, heart changing all sure. the way. So um, that, that transitions, um, significantly. And then, um, it was another change of when the five years is up is what are you going to do? How are you going to roll now? You don't have any, you don't have any consequences or accountability. How how are you going to roll? Here's the keys to the car again. Exactly. And so at that point in time, gratefully, you know, my heart had been changed. So I, I was now, you know, instead of in fear of, of my addiction and what was going to happen, I was living the higher law of love. 
you know, I, I wasn't living, if I don't do these things, I'm going to die. I loved how I lived and I loved our relationship. And mind you, there was, there was incremental line upon line, precept on precept growth in our relationship. And, and we're working individually on our own recoveries, but we started this really cool daily ritual where we would study together. We'd read books together. Um, Mylon and Kay Yurkovich, how we love just ate that up. Um, the bonds that set us free by Terry Warner. We'd study all these really awesome books together. Anatomy of peace, um, just really neat stuff. And so we, we were kind of doing our own thing. We were also getting counseling, but we felt there was still something missing, um, for us in our marriage that, and we kept digging for it, working for it. Ultimately, we went to a week-long retreat by a guy by the name of Dr. Doug Weiss mm-hmm. um, in, Colorado. in Colorado. Yeah, if you don't know Weiss, Weiss is a big deal in the sexual addiction recovery space. Kind big, of big time. Yep. And uh-huh. it's kind of like we were searching for answers in in our coupleship recovery and, uh-huh. and really in her Missy healing from the wounds. And he, he does a tremendous work there, which was for us... Um, kind of a landmark. That was kind of like our missing thing. I discovered a principle there. Um, he talks about um, addicts because as they grow up in in addictions, it's a faulty coping mechanism. So anytime pain bubbles up in your life, you cover up the pain with whatever it is that you use. And so what happens is you really suck at being uh, able to recognize emotions and emotional intimacy is out of the question. So I'll women, wife, people should have emotional intimacy. So as an addict, you deprive your wife of emotional intimacy because you just don't have a clue how it is because you just haven't matured. So that concept, you realize, oh my gosh. And so he, he has some techniques whereby he teaches you how to recognize and feel emotion that you just really, you know, have suppressed. You know, you feel anger, hate, you know, frustration, fear. You feel the big ones, but nothing that has yeah. any level of... Um, um, detail or difference. And so, um, just us understanding and going through exercises where we could learn how to identify emotions, talk about them, process together, comfort each other. We developed, um, that was kind of the crowning, I I don't want to say crowning jewel because we're still learning and growing so much. No, but yeah, big point. But it was a giant point for us is to go, oh my gosh, there's this connection level that, I mean, we've always loved each other deeply, deeply. And sorry, but um, there's, I mean, here's an illustration. Missy was trying on shoes on um, Saturday to get this boot and she has a prosthetic ankle. She's had a lot of physical stuff and her ankle doesn't fit into this. The boot's very good. So I get down and help her get them on and she's waiting for hip replacement and you know, the brain tumor and the pacemaker and all the things that she's been through. And, and, and she's feeling cruddy. Like, I feel like the, the wicked stepsister and Cinderella like, can't put the shoe on and just kind of beating herself Which be up. Which she like actually looks like Cinderella and has this super like <laughs> bright smile and beautiful, beautiful eyes. Beautiful. You would just, never. And um, <laughs> so you'd never guess this much stuff no, happening and, at and age I, 25. But, but yeah. I, but I, as in recovery and has some emotional intimacy, I could, I could feel where she was coming from and sense it and. And I hurt for her, her driving. And I just kind of opened my heart to her and I said, sweetheart, I love, you know, everything about you, but I love your wounds the most. And so if I had a magic wand and I could turn you back into the 22-year-old Missy or the you right now, I'd break the wand. 
I would, and I mean that 100%. And I I couldn't have understood that, seen that, or gone there. This was yesterday morning. We just had this really cool moment. And I say that with all sincerity when trade. And also the other thing, too, is, you know, the pains and the hards, the scars that we carry, I want to run my fingers over those scars and remember who healed me and what I learned in that lesson of those scars in life. I don't want to hide them. So I'm choosing to recover loudly because, I mean, it's a big deal. The redemption that God gives, man, right? (laughs) Well, and I think of, I think of the Brene Brown quote of, you know, shame, the less you talk about it, the more you have. Mm -hmm. And I, and I do, I always cringe a little bit when I hear, you know, so you don't need to talk about it anymore. Don't talk about it anymore. You shouldn't because it will make other people uncomfortable or, you know, that's just, you just kind of beating the dead horse and it will suck you back in. Right. And I always cringe because I'm like, if it's really scarred, if it's not still an open wound, you can touch it all you want. And it doesn't, it's not going to activate anything. I think that is such a sign to that question of like, how did things transition for you? Right. Like, I think that to me is one of the big signs of healing. Like, you know, all like when you guys don't have to talk about it anymore, not because you wouldn't just, there's nothing to talk about. Like, there's like, like rehashing it because you've already hashed it. It's not that you're avoiding it. It's just like, like I I said, like with Kayla, I'm like, I can't tell you last time Kayla asked me about prostitution, not because like we couldn't go there if she was triggered or whatever, but just like, we've just had that conversation enough times that just, she doesn't feel a need to have it. I don't. And if it were to come up, if she were to be driving it, like we would totally still have it. Right. But there's just not a need where I feel like the more you avoid it, almost the bigger it gets of space it can take up. Man, we could talk. Communication. Yeah. I said, sorry, you speak. No, no, I, well, and just with the scars, I just know that, me and the kids, when we were talking, because I had three, we had three married and one still in high school when he left, and we just talked and talked and talked. How are we gonna? How are we gonna deal with this? How do we talk to people? How do we let any people know what's going on? And and the the thing when Evan came home and the change that we had seen in him and seeing him continually, they're like, we don't want that perfect dad. We want this broken dad. He is awesome. This dad is so reachable and touchable and authentic. It, it, it's changed everything. So any conversation now we can have, he doesn't put up a shield or worry. He's, he's ready to hear the ugly raw sewage sometimes that comes up or bubbles up because we still have things that trigger. Mm-hmm. And I have to go, oh, I don't know why, I'm, why this is triggering me, but I, I'm going to figure it out. And we can talk without being him in shame and me blame. It, mm. It's really awesome. Yeah, you yeah, know, no, I love that. To that point about the kid thing, I, that, it, it, it's so true. I wish I could go back and do it over. I can't, so I can only be now and continue to be. They right? still need a dad, so don't worry. You got time. Exactly. Well, my 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 point is to a lot of my sponsees that we're talking about, and they have such shame about you know how they parented, and and I realized, hey, I was the perfectionist, so I thought that the way that you parent is who you try and project everything perfectly. You know, you're preaching obedience and here's how it is. And let me show you. And and it's so messed up. And I think sometimes in church leadership, we, we lean on that too much of we're preaching obedience. We can't show any vulnerability. We just got to be perfect. And in all leadership, I'll just go ahead. It does not work that way. <laughs> and then, then, you know, the epiphany is, oh my gosh, when you do that, all I'm doing is saying to my kids is you can't come talk to me. Yeah. And also I never teach that greatest lesson of all, which is you can be broken and healed. 
if I could teach my kids anything, that's the, that's the big lesson right there. And I, I never was vulnerable enough to do it because of my, my stinky imprints of being such a perfectionist. So now it's like the best parenting lesson. Well, and, and as a parent, you, they're having an experience that's augmented. It's not real. Right. Mm -hmm. So it's like, it's like me, like going and buying the new Tesla and coming on my kids and being like, you know, if you work hard, you can get this. And like, I barely made the down payment and it's actually uh, just a mountain of debt. Right. And I, and I may or may not actually be able to afford it. They don't see that part. They just see the car in the driveway. Right. So they don't see the opioid use or what's coming out sideways or the argument in the back room or how the sexual intimacy is messed up or whatever. They, they just see this. So they have that same sense of like, that feels really unachievable because the math doesn't add up and their gut is right. Cause mm-hmm. the math isn't adding up. It isn't adding they up. just can't see it. Right. And right. so I think you're so right. <clears throat> and it's what? interesting. Oh, sorry. No, go ahead. I just was interesting raising our kids and I'm the one telling them, okay, don't drink. Cause this happened to me. And when I smoked, you shouldn't be doing this. And I'm telling all these things yeah. of my youth when they're at, you know, the age yeah. and I'm like, okay guys, so yeah. this isn't, and they're like, dad, what did you do? <laughs> and he's like, um, well, I climbed out the seminary window and broke it and I felt really bad. <laughs> or like, I don't think that's the same equivalent of what mom's doing. I saved Mom. all my sins for much later, honey. Well, <laughs> well, and I think, and I think it's just naming what is really vulnerable and true, right? Like, if, right. because if it's true for you, if it is what you have shame about or your truth, right. it's going to show up as, you know. So totally. that's why what we love about this new dad, you know, is like, He's real. He's honest. It's fun to get into conversation with him, and it's deep and engaging. Yeah. So, what do you guys do as we kind of get in our last five minutes here? What is it that you guys do to like stay in this authenticity? To find it, we talked about how you know your story started with this kind of forced container, mm-hmm. but like, what's been the magic sauce to stay in it? Boy, I don't know about magic sauce, but I will tell you some of the the sprinkling of. Um, salt and pepper or oregano, whatever that we put on. One is um, we have a daily ritual of connection and study. And, you know, some days it's awesome. Like on Sundays, last Sunday we had the most, well, this weekend, unbelievable spiritual experiences are so connecting. So daily connection, daily ritual, prayer, study together, read, you know, independently. We love to sit and read or she's reading a book and I'm reading a book. And then you're just like, Oh, look at this part. And sometimes she'll be like, gosh, in my book, it says the same thing by a different guy. And he's talking about this and you're anyway. So we have these cool moments of connection, which are awesome and study. But we also, every night we started this thing as an outgrowth of the Doug Weiss uh, week. And, and we, feel like if we call out to each other and to God, three things, um, it's really connecting for us. One is the moment that I felt a stab of love for her during the day. And I tell her, here's when it was. And it does something powerful for me because I'm looking for it. And then I acknowledge it. I really loved you when this happened or when I saw you here, did that. And then she knows it. I love that. And then God knows it. And the second thing is when I experienced divinity that day, you know, something happened that was a God shot or a, a prompting or, you know, I did a thing and, or this person talked to me and it was just awesome. And I share that with her and then I call it out to me and I recognize it and I'm recognizing it to God that that happened and telling her about it. And then the other thing is when a hard thing, you know, happened in the day and then she does the same thing for me and it's like, oh my gosh, talk about connecting. 
and it, it, usually it's at night, you know, but that's, that was some nice, um, spices added too. Yeah. Um, well, there's a, there's a difference between the real spice and checking the box, mm-hmm. which, which you've named several times for this episode, which is why I just want to name it out loud. Like, thank you. Yeah, totally. Anything mine, you want to add? Mine is that we were given the opportunity to really, really learn how to connect with God individually. And because we did that, we both have this great connection with God individually. And then two children of God trying and are willing to work together to try and make this work. Um, I feel like that has been the divinity given to us um, because I, I wanted it to work. I, I was hoping and, you know, because there's, there's so many broken families, so many, so many things. And I, I just feel like if two people are willing to work, you can really make it work. Yeah, I love that. As you, uh, you know, we end every episode when people share their story with a song that has been just impactful or speaks to either this season you're in now in recovery or when it first started. And so there might be a couple different songs, but as we, as we close this episode here, the song for you guys. Rob Gardner, Lamb of God. And there's a song where Peter denies Christ. And there's, do we have a second? So let me. You do. Sorry. You have thirty seconds. So, so, so Peter is the guy who said no at the the Last Supper. No, I, you know, I'll fight for you. I'll never deny you. Ends up cutting the ear off, and and you know, Peter being Peter, and then come down to it when things happen, he's not paying attention to really what he's doing, and he ends up denying God three times, and then the cock crows, and he's just devastated. And I think to myself, you know, when I talked to a sponsor and said, you know. Sometimes I identify with that because I've denied him, you know, with three clicks of a mouse. I've denied him. And then I realize it and I'm just in such shame. And then later on in the, in the, the, the group of songs, it shows Christ uh, when he's resurrected and that they are fishing and he comes up to the, the boat and, and they're a distance and John goes, it's the Savior. And Peter recognizes it's the Savior. And then he doesn't in shame hunker down on the boat like, oh my gosh, I denied him. And the reason why he doesn't hunker down in shame is because he knows how much he loves the Savior and he knows how much the Savior loves him. And that overpowers shame. And so he dives in, he swims to the shore. And then they, they have this meal together and the Savior says poetically three times, love us on me, Peter, more than these. And he three times, yay, Lord, you know I love you. And then he goes, feed my sheep feed my sheep. So I think, yeah, I've been the mouse click. I've been the one, but I don't have shame anymore. And I'll swim to you. And if you want me to feed sheep to love you, I'm in. So I would say that, that those songs from the Robert Gardner, um, Lamb of God, that, that speaks to me. So before we end with uh, Robert Gardner, Lamb of God, just want to say thank you for taking the time to be here. Um, while you guys were in town, too, in person, is always just such a special experience. So um, super cool to, we have powwowed before. Super cool to meet you, Missy, in person. Thanks, so, you too. Thanks for being here with us. Um, hope that you will join us um, as outsiders for the bonus content with Evan and Missy, where we'll go over all the things in the episode that we wanted to talk more about. Um, if you are not an outsider, I invite you to go to unashamedunafraid.com slash donate um, and donate. Uh, 
all of that money goes to scholarships to help people come to things like a warrior heart, which, um, Evan mentioned in this episode, um, and other different cool online programs and different things. If you are in need of a scholarship, we invite you to go to unashamedunafraid.com slash scholarships. Um, but our outsiders, um, are those that we define as, uh, bold, accepted, and uh, unashamed, and um, who really do a lot of different things to help us push this movement forward and be a part of what we're doing. So along with the bonus content, we just love have you join us and do all of the things. Um, give us five stars on iTunes. Even if you're not listening on iTunes, that's how the world judges us in this algorithms around and all of that. Um, if you have a story, anonymous questions, anything, please reach out to us, um, unashamedunafraid.com or at unashamedunafraid on Instagram and soon to be TikTok, maybe by the time this episode's up. Um, and uh, Zuckerberg. Facebook. Facebook. Thank you. There's my old man. So, and, uh, so with that, now that my brain remember. is turning off, we'll uh, turn you over to Rob Gardner. And Peter remembered the words of Jesus. And he went out and wept bitterly. done denied him what have I done so now am I no different from the man take thy bread and turn again what have I done what have I done I hear their filthy tongues their vicious the lies they spin with Satan's yarn. I watch them spit and strike thy face. They mock thy name in foul disgrace. And when thou lookest for a friend, thou findest none, for I have fled, O God. What have I done? Take my Lord. I can't endure their cruel hands upon him while his own hands are tied with cord. Those hands with power to raise the dead command the storm now bound instead, and I cannot hear them mock his name. Cannot bear the foul breath upon him. I dare not look upon his face. And to see the very Son of God, his brow so bruised and stained with blood, his eyes that shed my sorrow's tears, and watch as all hope disappears, I will not watch them crucify my.
cannot watch what he must bear. For surely he must carry After these things, there were together, fishing in the Sea of Tiberias, Peter and Thomas and James and John, and three other disciples, and that night they caught nothing. But when the morning was come, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples knew not that it was Jesus. Then he saith unto them, Children, have ye any meat? They answered him, No. And he said unto them, Cast the net on the right side of the ship, and ye shall find. They cast therefore, and now they were not able to draw it in because of the multitude of fishes. And with this John knew him, and saith unto Peter, It is the Lord. Now when Peter heard that it was the Lord, he did cast himself into the sea to swim ashore. the disciples were come to land, Jesus saith unto them, Come and dine. And when they had dined, Jesus saith to Peter, Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou me more than these? Nay, Lord, thou knowest I love thee. He saith unto him, Feed my lambs. He saith to him again the second time, Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou me? Lord, thou knowest that I love thee. He saith unto him, Feed my sheep. And then the third time he saith, Simon, son of Jonas, Lovest thou me? Thou knowest all things, Lord. 